Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. We're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews this morning. And we come to a place in the letter as I've read it through uh, again, I realize we're at this place in the letter that reminds me of every great sports movie that was ever produced. There was always a point, like a turning point in the movie, usually a locker room scene where that coach just gives this challenging speech to the players. You know the moment I'm talking about, right? It usually begins, you know, somewhere and he's challenging and we've been through all this hard stuff, and, but we're at this moment, we never thought we'd be at this moment, and then usually a guy in the back, right, this slow clap starts and everyone's getting all kind of charged up. I almost feel like that's where we're at in this letter. Uh, there's, he's talked about the difficulties. He's talked about the hardships. And so as we press into our text, context in Scripture is incredibly vital as we study the Word of God. So I want to set this in context just a little bit because what we've heard so far as we work through chapters 1 through 10, uh, we hear about Jesus, the great high priest, and, and the new covenant, but, but we also know as he's writing this letter, he's writing to a group of people that are at very different places. And I want to invite you, wherever you are in your journey of life this morning, to realize that God is going to meet you specifically where you are. Just like this letter went to a lot of people at different places in their Christian journey, you and I are at very different places. And I would probably say if we did some kind of deep survey into everybody's life, no two of us are going to be at the same place in our Christian journey dealing with the same things as other people. Do you agree? Uh, How many are here, and you don't have to show me your hands, but you're probably at a place this morning going, nobody understands what I'm dealing with. No, No one is struggling with the things I'm struggling with. No one has the doubts that I have. No one has the concerns that I have. No one has the fear or anxiety that I, no one has the grief that I have. No, no one has the lack of trust. No one, and, and we can, we can play that game all day long. But here's what I want you to understand. God is going to meet you specifically at the point of your need as you learn to press into him. That's the personal God that he is. And so up to this place, we've seen this group of believers, these Hebrew believers who've turned away from the religion and ritual of Judaism to the person of Jesus Christ and embrace him by faith. We we see some drifting away. We see some dealing with spiritual doubt and, and sort of a dullness in their faith and their journey. We see others abandoning their faith, others kind of turning their back going, hey, I want, I want it both ways. I want the religion and the ritual, but I also want Jesus. Uh, We see some sort of deliberately despising God's Word. We see others getting to the place that they are sort of rejecting their faith and not even gathering with other believers anymore. And so it's sort of at this juncture, he begins to press in in chapter 10, beginning around verse 19, challenging the believers to press in with full assurance of faith. Let me just hit a couple highlights here for you. In chapter 10, if you have your Bible, uh, verse 22, 
Let me just give you, let me just give you some highlights that, that sort of set up the context of where the writer is taking us. Verse 22, he's challenging them with all this stuff, no matter where you are. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Verse 25, not neglecting meeting, but encouraging one another. He's doing a similar thing here that he did in chapter 6, where there's a shift in some pronouns between us and them, between we and he, and he's, he's making it very personal. Drop down to verse 35, he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, key word, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Two critical words right there in 35 and 36 of chapter 10, confidence and endurance. The writer used this same terminology back in chapter 6. Uh, if I could just kind of look at chapter 6, verse 12, he said, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's pressing into the idea that we are saved by faith. We have to press in with faith and patience or endurance to keep pressing on in our walk and our relationship with Christ. See, there's nothing more that Satan wants for any of us than to just give up. Oh, it's not worth it. It's not, it's not worth pressing on, but it is. It's worth pressing on toward the goal toward the prize, right? The, the, the reward that God has promised us. And so he's talking about confidence and endurance, literally faith and patience. With faith, we receive Christ. With faith, we continue to live for Christ. With endurance, with patience, waiting on the Lord to do what only God can do. We can't manufacture the work of God. We have to wait on the work of God as we live by faith. And so what is this faith? We see in verse 38 and 39, uh, he sort of contextualizes really the book. He says, but my righteous one shall live by what? By faith. He, he's quoting here from Habakkuk chapter 2 in the Old Testament. And then if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but, now get this, notice the verb shift, right? But we... We, you and me, we're pressing on together, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So it's interesting because you look and you go, so what is this faith? He's talking about faith. What is this faith that is pleasing to God? Is it enough to just give him intellectual assent or lip service and go, yeah, well, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Is it enough to, to do those things, but then still live outwardly in a way that looks just like the world? He's going, no. There's something different about the person of faith. Through all the difficulties, all the hardships, we don't turn back, and he says to, to shrink back and, and are destroyed. That's an interesting word, uh, because that word destroyed is is, is kind of a, your, your translation may even use the word perdition. It's a pretty, pretty interesting word, but, but it's used about 20 times throughout the New Testament. And each time, and not each time, sometimes it's translated the same, but it's, it's, there's some different translations. It may be translated perish, it may be translated die, it may be translated destruction, but not in every case does it necessarily mean judgment. 
In Matthew chapter 26, I love the way it was used there because you know the story is the, the woman is anointing Jesus with this precious oil. And the disciples use the same word, but they say, look, she's wasting. They're wasting. And, and I love that, that translation for the usage right here. Because he's saying, look, you can shrink back as a follower of Jesus. You can shrink back and waste your life. Literally to be destroyed of no value. You've wasted the salvation that God has given you because you've not made a, an eternal impact in this world. Or you can press on by faith and preserve their soul. As he's, as he's speaking here, it's kind of interesting because preserve their souls is, is a direct contrast to waste your life. In other words, you can waste your life or you can gain your life. You can waste your life and not make an eternal impact for Jesus, or you can make an eternal impact for Jesus by living by faith. The same phrase was used at least two other times in Scripture. Paul used it in Romans chapter 3, right? The righteous will live by faith. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 11, the righteous will live by faith. Well, we're not just saved from our sin by faith, we're also saved to live by faith. And so that's what he presses into with this idea of being destroyed or to preserve your faith. We can have an incredible confidence. The context here is the confidence that we have to persevere, to endure with patience and faith. Why? We've already, we've already studied because Jesus is our great high priest. He's entered us into a new covenant, and so we have this boldness, this confidence to press forward with Jesus leading and guiding. So the first thing I want you to take away just contextually is, is this truth, that faith is lived out individually. Faith is lived out individually. You cannot accept Jesus for someone else. Nor as a child of God can you live out a bold Christian faith for someone else. That becomes very personal and very individual. God's invitation to you and I to come to know him in personal relationship is a personal invitation to come into personal relationship with him. And when we do that, we are called personally and individually to live out that faith. No one can live a bold, confident faith for you. But this idea of living by faith is tough, isn't it? Anyone else discover that it's, it's tough to live by faith? Uh, it's not simply uh, being around a group of people who are living by faith. You have to learn to live by faith. And he presses into that as we move through our text. So in chapter 11, then verse 1, as he's challenging them, right, by faith to persevere, to preserve their, their promise, but not waste their life, he, he sets up this idea of how is it that we live by faith. And so in chapter 11, verse 1, he gives us a simple definition. And again, it's easy to grab these couple verses completely out of context and miss everything that he's saying right here. 
So he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Your translation may say testimony. Um, by faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. So he sets up this idea of faith. What is it to live by faith? If I'm not going to shrink back, but I'm going to walk in bold obedience and confidence, step by step, faith after faith after faith, what does that mean? He says it begins with assurance and conviction. And he parallels two critical statements that, that define a, a bold living faith. Assurance of what? Assurance of things hoped for conviction of things not seen. So when you put those words together, the word assurance refers to the essence of something. Uh, it, it's that which stands under something creating a foundation or a support. So we, we have this foundational support of things hoped for, not a pie in the sky kind of a thing, but there's a confidence that goes with this in the person of God, and he addresses that. But there's also a conviction. Your word, your translation may say evidence. New Living Translation uses the word evidence. In the secular Greek, it referred to a test or a trial which shows a thing as it really is. So in other words, it's been tested and tried as true. And so we have these foundational things for us holding true the invisible reality of spiritual things and the trustworthiness of God's future promises. In other words, the things hoped for and things not seen because it's a foundational essence of faith in a true God. And so this definition not only points to the state of faith, which is believing, but it also points to the activity of faith, which is being faithful, right? Uh, the, the state of believing is us putting our faith and trust in Christ. By faith, we are entering into a personal relationship with him. But by entering into a personal relationship by faith, we also demonstrate and live out our faith in everyday actions by being faithful to the call of God. We are saved by faith, and we also then live by faith. There was a reality moment or season really in my life years ago. Um, I remember so clearly as a young boy giving my heart and life to Jesus. I mean, it's, it's so vivid in my mind. I remember small little church in northern Illinois where it's cold all year long. I remember going down in the basement in the boiler room with my dad, and I remember getting on my knees, and I, inv I invited Jesus into my life. And it was an incredible moment. And I believe wholeheartedly that God did exactly what he promised he would do. He took up residence in my life. As at about age 15, I made a, a decision to follow the Lord in believer's baptism to identify my life and my walk with Jesus Christ. But it probably wasn't until I hit my early toward mid-20s that I came to a stark realization, and that is my faith has to be my own. I had to embrace it to, to live a passionate life for Jesus had to be my choice every day of my life. Now, I was being greatly influenced by a father who was passionate about Jesus, and, and I think somewhere in my mind, I had this assumption that I could just sort of inherit this passionate faith of another man. 
God dropped some other guys into my life. There's probably four or five men that I could mention at that season of my life that I started to realize my faith has to be my own and I can't simply inherit or sort of catch a passionate faith from anyone else. It had to be my own. I had to begin to make choices and decisions that lived out the faith that I said I believed. And I think that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing right here. I can't inherit my faith. It has to be mine. You cannot inherit a faith from someone else. It has to be yours. And this foundational faith is also necessary to begin to take God at his word. That's what he's telling us in verse 3. Uh, regarding things that, that are past or things that are yet to come that we don't know about, things that are invisible. And so what is the description that he uses? He uses God's creation as a way of going, this is a, a faith thing. You trust in this omnipotent God who created all things with a spoken word. You see, one of the names attributed to God through Scripture is Jehovah. And Jehovah means that God is the self-existent one that literally his creation was spoken into existence by him and he holds it together in the palm of his hand and yet he exists outside of his creation. He is Jehovah God. And you, you want to just press into this a little bit, jump on YouTube this week, look for the group What If and find the video What If, what if We Lost Gravity for Five Seconds. Just watch that. Spend about five minutes and 50 seconds of your life and just, just enjoy what it would be like if God just sort of gave up control for five seconds without gravity. See, there's things that I don't understand because I don't have the capacity to completely understand God. And yet so often we struggle in our faith because we want to define God in human terms instead of understanding that God is beyond uh, human terms. I had an encounter with some cult missionaries on my porch one day, and my wife got to the place. She goes, sweetheart, please stop calling all these 800 numbers and requesting all this info because whenever they come, they come when you're not home. <laughs> but one Saturday morning, these missionaries showed up on my doorstep, and I mean, I want to know what they're thinking. I want, to know, I want to know what I'm up against, right, when I'm telling people about Jesus. And so I had an encounter with these people, and they couldn't understand certain aspects of God. And I said, so wait a minute, so what you are telling me is that you want a small compartmentalized God that you could completely understand in human terms. Well, no, not really. I said, that's what you're telling me. I said, I don't want that kind of God. I want a God that is so big and so vast and so enormous that I can't even begin to comprehend the vastness of his power. They left. They never did come back after <laughs> our encounter. But I love that, right? I mean, I don't want some puny God. I want a huge God. And I'm telling you, in my mind and in my flesh and in my frailty of humanity, I cannot explain and completely understand all of the nature and character and splendor and majesty of God. And I'm telling you what, I'm okay with that. Because by faith, I'm going to step in with boldness and courage to that God and go, God, you are so much more capable of doing things that I can't explain. And I want to press into that by faith. So I see this moment as the writer is pressing into this idea and he's going, look, it's your faith. It's your faith. You have to own your faith. But then he says, your faith is strengthened as we grow in dependence on the character of Christ. 
The faith that I live, the faith that you live is dependent on how we understand the nature and character of God. You see, I, I firmly believe that you and I live the perspective of God that we have. Your life demonstrates the perspective of God that you have. If you see God as, as all powerful and majestic and, and truly living in you, the, that the creator, sustainer of the universe lives in you, it changes the way you live. If you see God as distant and impersonal force, that he's not really involved in your life, you, you begin to live that out. If you somehow believe that God loves you more because you do good things or you try to do the right things, you're, you're missing the perspective on God. If you see God as some giant vending machine that you just, just step up and deposit a few prayers and think he's going to dispense what you want, that's the perspective of God that you live. And the writer of Hebrews is saying you have to understand the nature and character of God. And the more you grow in dependence on him and knowledge of him and strength of him, it changes how you live by faith. And so he takes us then to verse 6. And he says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever. Now get this, there's three things that he talks about in depending on God. First, you must draw near to God. You must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How do we worship God? How do we strengthen ourselves in him? How do we learn to depend on his character? He tells us right here, he says, you press in. You draw near to God. Let me just ask you this. Do you enjoy God? I mean, do you enjoy him? Do you look forward to time with him do you look forward to just pressing into his word? Do you draw near to him? Do you draw near to him with a bold confidence, believing that he exists, that he rewards? In other words, that he's faithful and trustworthiness, that he's trustworthy to all of his promises? That's what he's saying. You draw near to him in bold confidence of his existence, and you trust him to do what he said he would do. If I were to say this another way, Dave's paraphrase, I would say we need to come to him as our source for everything with an attitude of openness and trust because he's trustworthy and we can depend on him completely. That's how we draw to him. See, a life of faith presupposes an attitude of humble dependence, which works itself out in these three ways. We draw near with bold confidence, knowing that he's trustworthy. That's how we begin to live out this life of faith. Now, again, no one can do this for you. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to through the years. Oh, Pastor David, I just can't. You know, man, I can't read the Bible. Yeah, you can. Yes, you can. Oh, Pastor David, I, man, I can't memorize Scripture. Yes, you can. I promise you, you're going to leave today. You're going to jump in your car. You're going to turn on your radio or your eight track, whatever you have in your car. <clears throat> and you're going to rock it out to some song and you're going to know all those words. How did you get to know those words? Anybody? You listen to it over and over and over. Can't tell you how many times I dropped the needle on my vinyl over and over on songs, burning it out, cassette tapes. I, I had an eight track player back in the day. Wish I still had it. But see, it's repetition. Let me ask you a question because I love asking this question to people. When was the last time you personally spent time in God's word 
And he brought you to a verse that was so significant and so meaningful to you that you said, I got to commit that one to memory. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to stick it on a post-it note and I'm going to put it on the mirror of my car and I'm going to see it every day until that thing's committed to my memory. Why? Because psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You need to press into the nature and character of God, dig into his word, find those promises, look for those, those promises, look for those prayers, look for those things that are, uh, that are a new thought about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and begin to press into those things, draw near to him in full assurance of faith. Pick up God's word and read it. Now listen to me really careful. You don't have to read a long time, but you need to get into it. I tell people all the time, guys, the goal in Bible study is not quantity, it's quality. Pick up up your Bible this week and just begin to read Hebrews chapter 11. Don't, Don't even go through the whole thing. Go through like verse 22. Just double back and read through the first seven verses. And just study Enoch and Abel. Study this definition again. Read it, and you're going to go, this is ridiculous. Read it every day. The same thing every day. And you're going to go, that's like boring. That's repetitious. That's how you press into it. I'm a slow reader. And I read stuff, and pretty soon I'm five, six pages up, and I'm going, what did I just read? Anybody else? You with me? And I back up, and I go, no, wait, where did I leave off? Oh, okay, I remember this. Let me start back here again. I'm I'm slow, but I have to be methodic, right? There's nothing Satan wants more than to keep you from pressing into intimacy with Jesus. So what do you have to do? You have to begin to discipline yourself to be intimate with Jesus. Take little bits at a time. Take five minutes. Take three minutes. I promise you, as you press in, you're going to fall deeper in love with him, and that time's going to grow to be more and more and more. But don't tell me you can't because it's a choice of faith and no one can do it for you. You have to do it yourself. The person of faith then believes what God says without questioning. And therefore, he begins to do what God says without quarreling. Do you get this? You see, if if I question God about everything... There's no confidence, there's no hope. And then he leads me to do something and I begin to, to, I begin to cut a deal with God, right? Uh-uh. God says, look, you come to me without question, therefore you do without quarreling. And you walk by faith. God leads us to do things by faith. But then I love it because the next point, my next takeaway when I read this text is that faith is motivated by the example of others. Anybody been motivated in your faith by another person? Man, there are people in my life that I just, I'm so encouraged by. And and God keeps adding to that group of people over and over. I love watching people grow in their faith. I love people taking steps of faith and just stepping out in bold confidence, trusting God to do what they don't feel capable of doing and seeing God work. So in these first six verses of of Hebrews chapter 11, the writer creates what I kind of look at as a framework for the remainder of the letter, chapters 11, 12, 13. He uses this section in chapter 11, sort of right now we're looking at a framework, then he takes the rest of the chapter and he begins to, to put color to it. Because he begins to share stories. There's at least 17 characters that that are listed throughout chapter 11, and we're not going to get to all of them today. We're not going to get to all of them in the next three weeks. 
but we're going to come back in the summer. We're going to press into some of these characters to really understand how they lived by faith. And so he's challenging them not to shrink back, but to have faith and to begin to persevere. So look at verses four and five. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended, that is to testify or to test, have a testimony as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In other words, he still has a living testimony to you and I thousands of years later because he lived by faith and boldness and courage, trusting God. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that uh, he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended that his life was a testimony. He testified through his faith and endurance as having pleased God. How many of you want to leave a legacy for Jesus? See, we're so worried about our investments and I want to leave my kids a lot of stuff. My kids got nothing. It's like, well, whatever you're going to get, you're getting on your own because I got nothing for you. I'm storing up treasures in heaven. Man, I just want to live in reckless abandon to Jesus. That's my legacy. The legacy I want to leave with them is a life that's well lived for the cause of Jesus Christ. I want to leave them a Bible that's well used, well worn, well pressed into. To realize that was the thing that drew me close to Christ. Because this life is but a vapor that vanishes. I want to leave a spiritual legacy that is remembered. And that's what he's challenging these believers to do. Press in. Don't shrink back. Just keep pressing forward. See, to lay that foundation, he uses these examples of, of people that these readers would have immediately known about. They would immediately know the story of Abel. They would immediately know the story of Enoch. The very next story in verse 7 is about Noah. They would immediately have known that. Every one of these characters were, were people uh, of great example as they walked and lived by faith in the person of God. They trusted his character he, because he's trustworthy and, and they depended on him. Listen, you and I need each other to walk in faithfulness to Jesus. Do you realize that? We need each other. The, all through the New Testament, we are called to, to life together to walk in fellowship with one another, to love one another, to hold one another accountable. We've already seen it in chapter 10, to encourage one another. Don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another. Hebrews 11, but encourage one another daily so that none of you will be hardened by sins of deceitfulness. Listen, we need each other. We need the example of one another's lives to walk in fellowship with Jesus. As he's giving this encouragement, I can't help but think back to that Facing the Giants movie, because I remember the, the coach played by Alex Kendrick, one of the Kendrick brothers that produced it, and he got young Brock, you remember the scene, go back and, go back and watch it this week, because it's such a beautiful picture of this text, and I wanted to roll it this morning, but every time I watch it, I cry, and I couldn't, I said, thought, man, I'm going to cry, and then I wouldn't be able to finish but he pulls Brock out because Brock is a leader in the team. He's an influencer. Just like you and I are influencers to people around us, he identified Brock and Coach Grant pulled him out and he said, he said, I want you to do the death crawl. And then he's like, how far do you want me to go? The 20? He said, I think you can go to the 50. So he puts little Johnny, whatever his name is, on the back, 160 pounds. And, but, but then interestingly, by faith, not knowing, not visible, he blindfolds him. And Brock gets down and he begins to do the death crawl. And he's like, am I there yet? Am I there yet? And he goes, just, 
just keep going. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. And the coach gets down on the ground and he's beating the ground. He goes, don't you give up on me. Don't you give up on me. You keep going. And it's such enough. Here I go. Such an incredible moment because the team who's, who's all kind of passive, and they begin to stand up and they begin to follow him up the field. And you can tell what's happening is their lives are being motivated by this one guy who by faith is doing what the coach is asking him to do. And if you know the story, it's just going to be a, a deal breaker for you. He, he made it to the 50, didn't he? He actually made it to the end zone. And the kid's crying, and he's going, man, just, and the coach is going, just keep going. Don't you give up on me. Don't you give up on me. And he makes it. Folks, listen to me. There are people around us who are drawn to us by our testimony of faith as we walk close with Jesus. And as we persevere with Jesus, people are looking at us. And the Holy Spirit is saying, Dave, don't you give up. Don't you give up. You keep going. You keep persevering. Don't you give up on me because others are watching and others are dependent on you. And what we know about the story, which is true of us in the church, is that that team went on to do something great because one guy gave them the courage to do it. And the coach came back with a great locker room scene too. Just this great motivation. Man, we're going to leave it all on the field to the glory of Jesus. You see, I have one life to give to Jesus and I want to leave it all on the field to the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling them to do. And so what does he do? He, he brings in these examples. He's going, man, remember Abel, rem remember Enoch, remember Isaac, remember Abraham, remember Rahab, remember all these people. And he begins to encourage them to continue to press on, keep pressing on, keep pressing on. Why? I believe this with all my heart. Men learn to be godly men in the presence of other godly men. Women learn to be godly women in the presence of other godly women as we walk by faith and encouraging one another with boldness, with faithfulness, with patience, with conviction, with assurance, with endurance to persevere for the cause of Jesus Christ. But here's the reality of what he's telling them. He says, you can't do this. You can't, you can't do this. I can't do this, but Christ in me can. That's what he's reminding them. You have this great high priest who's invited you into this new relationship, and you can't do it. You are sinful by nature, and you have nothing in you except the Holy Spirit of God that will equip you and allow you to do this. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, he said, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through you. Because that's what he's doing. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. It's Christ's hope in us that he is reaching other people. And we step by faith, not in my flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ in me, living through me. But the last thing I see in this text is that faith is the only thing that enables us to please God. When we jump back to verse 6, it simply begins with these words. And without faith, it is what? Impossible. Impossible to please him. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We live by faith not to earn His love and grace. We live by faith in response to His love and grace. Anything I do in my sin, and Pastor Scott's pressed into this several times in messages, if someone doesn't know Christ, they can do good deeds, but it's still sinful. But when we come to know Christ and we're walking in fellowship with Christ, we please Him by faith. Not to earn His love and grace, but in response to His love and grace. We live by faith. He's reminding us that we must allow Christ to work in us before He can work through us. Sometimes we get that backwards, and in church life, we want to do things for God instead of just being His. We have to be his child. We have to allow him to do a work in us. And our ministry then is an overflow of what God is doing in us. When we turn that around, it's not pleasing to God. You can do a lot of things for God that are not pleasing to him because you're flipping it upside down. You're trying to do ministry externally instead of allowing Christ to work in you so that he can then work through you. As we step out by faith, we're simply allowing him, by faith, God, work in me so you can work through me. God, work in me so you can work through me. Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, what? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Now get this, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Do we work hard for God? Yes. But we do it because he's first doing a work in us so that he can then work through us. I don't know where you're at this morning. Uh, is Christ working in you? Have, you? have you come to know him? Have you come to trust him? Where you can honestly say, yes, Christ lives in me and he is doing a work in me. If you've never come to that place, we want to encourage you, whether you're online, you can text Jesus to the number on your screen right now. We'd love to have a conversation if you're in the room. If you've just never come to that place or you're unsure, if you've come to that place of trusting Jesus, we want to help you do that, help you understand what it means to just give your heart and life to Jesus and begin this new relationship with him. If you are a child of God, and I know that many of you are, let me just ask you, what is God doing in your life? I want you to be an encouragement to others in this place. So here's what I would love for you to do. I would love for you to, to text me or call me or, or send me a, uh, you know, a pigeon roll note on a leg. I, however you want to communicate with me, uh, you can hit the church website, sfchurch.com, and just email us at info at sfchurch, or you can email me at slear at sfchurch. No, I'm kidding. Just dmorley at sfchurch. You can get it right on the website. I would love to know what is going on in your life. Maybe you've taken a recent step of faith and you've seen God do some incredible things. I'd love to know that because I think it'd be an encouragement to others to be surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, right, that are encouraging one another to take other steps of faith. 
Maybe someone has been an encouragement to you. Would you let us know that? Maybe someone reached out to you, and this is not a boastful thing at all, but maybe someone just reached out to you and said, thank you for this because you encouraged me to do this. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews begins to press into. How can we encourage one another by the testimony of other believers? So I would love to know that. Maybe you're struggling with a decision, and maybe you feel like God is calling you out into a step of faith, and you're not really sure what that looks like. Let us know. We'd love to pray with you about that. Again, we can't make a decision for you, but we can pray with you. We can talk to you. The Bible says there's wisdom in much counsel. So we'd love to just pray with you and talk with you, help you continue to grow in your walk and relationship with Jesus no matter where you are in that journey. Let's pray together. Father, in this place, we just surrender to you. You are a good and a gracious God. Lord, we know that you are working in our midst. Lord, we sit before you as a group of people who are just sinful. And yet, Father, we've trusted you. We love you. We ask you to work in us. God, let us be an encouragement to others through our testimony as we walk by faith day after day, depending on the character of God because you are true and you are faithful. Meet us in this moment, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.